I want to start off with a kind of bold statement. Um, and it's a statement that I have to make despite Compass and its findings um, on, on the UK and in Europe, that it seems that um, Europe, um, facing economic turbulence, facing unending hybridization of one kind or another, no longer wants the migrant. Even progressives and Democrats seem to be joining conservatives and nationalists in declaring the house to be full, in justifying xenophobia as non-racist. And the far-right rhetoric that we used to see once upon a time and put up on this particular slide ironically has become mainstream. Uh, perhaps not using the same kind of vitriolic uh, or emotional language that you see on the slide, but it, it's very common to see statements from the mainstream which play to this kind of affect of fear and, and anxiety um, towards the outside of the stranger. And if the southern nations do not close their borders, often cannot close their borders, it's still the case that their stretched economies and their stretched infrastructures continue to discriminate against the migrant, as do their poor majorities and elites pressing um, for their own interests. So the narrative of nation is becoming disturbingly um, identitarian and very negative for that too. Which is perhaps why um, in some areas of progressive thinking, uh, people are turning to cities as the spaces that perhaps do not live by the rules of nation, by the rules of homogeneous community, or the rules of nostalgic, nostalgic return. And very often encouraged by research, um, in this case including the research that uh, Compass has, has led, showing that urbanites, people living in metropolitan areas, particularly in the global north, um, tend to be much more at ease with diversity than elsewhere, young people in particular. So the question I want to ask in my contribution this afternoon is, well, how should we think of the city of migrants? Should we think of this city um, as a space apart from nation and its increasingly choreographed politics of community? Or should we think of the city as a space where plural geographies of biopolitical and vernacular regulations of difference intersect. And in such a way that there are no guarantees, actually, for the migrant. That what happens to, uh, in terms of migrant outcomes is as contingent as anywhere else. Um, and in thinking about this paper, it, it kind of dawned on me that these, these actually are quite important political questions. Because one of the first implies that the facts of everyday multiculture might end up tempering the fictions of nation. The second, the notion that the city is as contingent a place as any other, tends to point towards an explicit politics of justice, even at the level of the city, if we want a city uh, of the migrant, which is for the migrant. 
in the, in the benign narrative on the city of migrants, the city's character as an open and plural entity is thought to work to the advantage of migrants. So we hear that migrants and other sub subalterns benefit from a culture of anonymity or conviviality, which is, which is said to characterize particularly urban public space, streets, libraries, schools, workplaces. <coughs> we hear of migrants, especially in the un undergoverned cities of the South, um, being able to stake out a claim in the unclaimed parts of the city. The slums, the peripheral areas, the peri-urban areas, sometimes indeed within the city itself, if you read the work of Philip the Book on Kinshasa. We hear often of the first generation somehow managing to skimp and save in order to ensure a better future for the next generation that feels much more at ease in the modern metropolis and having kind of um, gone beyond, if you like, some of the limitations of a rural background. So here, the city, and just to use a word that the architect Rahul Merotra uses, the city as a kinetic system, brimful of change and energy, is supposed to be the space in which the migrants, um, one amongst the multitude, can manage to survive. And I think I have to say first off that there's, there's a lot to be valued in this account. Um, three things that stand out to me anyway in particular. One is it's the recognition in this account of the agency and the subjectivity of the migrant. For too long we've talked of migrants um, um, as kind of objects, as, as intrusions, as, as if you like people without history. And this new positive writing on uh, the, the migrants in the city absolutely gives back to, to migrants their subjectivity. Um, and secondly, we should also value uh, the, the, the specificity of the city as a social space. city is not the nation. The city as a kind of agglomeration of difference and diversity seems to work in a different kind of way. So we have to think of the city as a, as a distinctive social space in which migrant fortunes are different from, let us say, migrant fortunes in the context of the nation. And then thirdly, um, it is a literature that, that in small but very significant ways points us towards the possibility of empowerment in, in subtle ways. So subjectivity, empowerment, and the specificity, specificity of the city emerge here as three really quite significant tropes, I think. But other research on the urban also narrates a very different story. Depending on whose story and where, the evidence speaks of some other things that I want to uh, briefly summarize. The research speaks of the entrapment, the absolute entrapment of migrants and indeed of the urban poor in a spiral of debt and deprivation, UN habitats. Uh, three billion, for example, when the UN, when UN Habitat writes of the three billion poor of the, of the world by 2050 or 2060, essentially it's talking about the poor amongst which many, many migrants, transnational and people who come from rural backgrounds, being stuck in absolute poverty in the city. 
Um, the city of, in which uh, research shows that, that migrants are systematically denied from resources of both the formal and the informal city. So this is both a problem in the north and in the south. And there's a wonderful book by David Satterthwaite and, and Mitley that talks about this, uh, this problem in the cities of the south of systematic denial. And then thirdly, um, a, a time of evidence uh, referring to the backlash of majorities against the industrious migrant. I'm thinking of Whitehouse's book in Brazzaville, again, it's a beautiful book in which he writes about, poignantly about uh, people from the rest of Africa coming, living in Brazzaville, becoming um, industrious migrants, managing to eke a living, and then repeatedly facing some form of racism or other from majority, very jealous of the achievements. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's a lot of research that talks about the poor state of migrant neighborhoods. Um, the, the brutality of elites and authorities um, towards migrants, particularly those who are concentrated in, in particular spaces like the Bandier outside of Paris or elsewhere in the world. Uh, the ups and downs of migrants being tracked in very strong client list networks and ties in order to get from A to B. Client list ties are closed ties. And then there's also um, considerable research that shows that the culture of anonymity and conviviality in public space is actually a very fragile culture. It's a transient culture. Um, for example, many, many in ethnography of uh, phenotypical racism, that is racism that is played out on the basis of bodies encountering each other and making judgments of each other on the basis of um, the color of skin, gait, clothing, and whatever else. Um, and evidence of phenotypical racism that today escalates into overt acts of aggression on the streets of cities as a xenophobic biopolitics of nation um, courses through the streets of our city in the form of street surveillance, harsh policing, and drummed up public anger because of this and punitive biopolitics of nation. Um, but there's also research, again, that, that contests and questions the, 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 the assumption of conviviality in, this, in, in, the, in, in public space by showing, and uh, there's a wonderful piece of research here by Suzanne Wessendorf, that shows that, in fact, street accommodations often give way to monochromatic aversions in the privacy of the whole. I don't like migrants, say, say people in the privacy of the home. Perhaps a kind of transition from public space into home, which also reflects opinions that are cultivated, feelings that are cultivated in public space, not because of the encounter between strangers, but indeed, in the, particularly in the context of the city, feelings generated by our um, uh, sensory experience of the built environment. I think this is another area of research that really needs to be um, looked at much, much more and how feelings towards migrants are conditioned not so much by the interhuman and the interpersonal, but by the kind of moods and affects that are generated by the urban environment itself. In short, um, what I'm trying to say is that um, 
much more, much more comes into view than, than the city as a space of becoming for the migrant. Which is perhaps why Michael Keith has rightly suggested, uh, in my, rightly in my view, that a variety of interventions might be needed uh, to enhance the positive impact of migration to metropolises. So uh, I want to now move on from the, this, this quote to look at some of the kind of normative implications of uh, coming to a view that we cannot think of the city as the space of becoming. If then the way forward is to reinforce, a progressive way of forward is to reinforce, and I quote from Michael, a civic future that is shared by migrants and settled members alike. It strikes me that a list of pro-migrant reforms at the level of the city may not be the best place to begin. Yet how such a civic future uh, that Michael refers to, and I absolutely agree with, how such a civic future is addressed is far from clear in, in the policy and the political writing. There are very few clues in the literature but one plausible option might be, which is the one that I want to suggest and close my paper on, is one plausible option might be um, an active politics of presenting the city as a plural but shared commons. <coughs> a politics in which the case is made without apology that the, the city accepted as a plural and shared commons and one that is maintained as such can actually make for general well-being. Across the urban world, north and south, um, an elite point of view, often shared by majorities, is that those without rights or means should be the last to be allowed into the circle of access to public goods. These goods are portrayed by leaders and increasingly by the media and politicians too as scarce, as expensive, and as best left to market supply, and reserved for those who, <coughs> who either shout the loudest or pay the most. Ironically, though, it's, it, is a, it is here that the problems of the migrant and the poor urban majority overlap. Both are the victims of collective spaces services and infrastructures withheld. Both let down by a narrative blaming the migrant as the drain on collective resources. Both, I think, stand to gain from a politics of collective provisioning that begins neither with the special needs of this or that community, nor with the elusive premises, promises sorry, of multiculturalism or conviviality but with the tangible necessities of a breathable air for everybody. And this means, I think, quite literally, a politics of attending to the quality of air in all parts of the city. But I think it also means a, a politics of making available, on a generalized basis, decent and affordable housing, public transport, water, electricity and sanitation, and in, in the South, above all, primary health care and education. 
a principle that neoliberalism in the North and state absence in the South, it seems to me, has rendered almost unthinkable. And this kind of a politics of the commons involves, uh, as a politics, it involves, I think, the city's excluded communities, minority and majority, beginning to work with progressive movements to reject a politics of provisioning um, reserved just for the few, and instead replacing it with a politics of generalized access, which is justified both as fair but actually as necessary for the city, because the city is nothing other than the machine that constantly generates surplus, surplus that cannot always and should not always be appropriated or privatized. Now, this is not to underestimate at all the considerable financial, institutional, uh, and political challenges that are involved, but I don't think these are uh, insurmountable. Or let, let me put it this way, I think without such a politics of the commons, uh, it's almost inconceivable to think of the city of the migrants that works for the migrants. Financially, yes, the city of a functioning commons is absolutely an expensive city. Um, considering, if we consider the costs today of laying down, uh, maintaining and supplying urban uh, services, Yet interestingly, at least as far as Global South is concerned, there is ample ev evidence of the ability of the poor to design low-cost housing and infrastructure, experiments that could be incorporated into the planning of the urban grid of supply. Experiments that perhaps could even nudge the logic of provisioning to one of satisfying rather than maximizing the needs of the few who do get access to all kinds of public goods. Um, and possibly while we're on this point of financing such a city, I, I fully accept that we, are, we live in a time in which of, of extreme fiscal stress at the municipal level in terms of financing services. But it's not inconceivable to think about, uh, if you like, a world funding structure uh, oriented towards infrastructure that combines um, fiscal reforms at the municipal level with all forms of new types of funding um, from international sources of in particular infrastructural projects. So at one level what I'm saying is the problem of the urban commons is, is, is quintessentially a problem of infrastructure today. Infrastructure and services. Infrastructure and welfare. Um, I think it's also the case that um, institutionally the status quo does not help either, uh, either uh, sorry, the institutional um, structure status quo does not help either. With the, with the authorities in the over-regulated city increasingly averse to surplus populations, and those in the under-regulated uh, city uh, jettisoning uh, the poor to spaces of abs absent collective infrastructure. Perhaps um, a working compromise here might be found in the combination of strict municipal regulation of the most essential services in order to ensure fair distribution and facilitative public action 
in neighborhoods where the poor already, to quote Abdelmalik Simon, assemble incremental lives in incremental environments, where the poor themselves are involved in constructing infrastructures. And here the public authorities could do an awful lot at, 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 at let's, let's call it low cost, to buttress these um, neighborhood experiments by offering a housing tenure, by providing access to clean water, by making sure that there is public sanitation. Um, in, in the end, though, in the end, though, there could be no formula for the expanded urban commons. Why this, there's just far too much variety and far too much dissonance in the urban system internationally for, for us to even co contemplate or formulate approach to the urban commons as a way of dealing with the problem of migration. The challenge, I think, ultimately, is one of political amplification, of building resonance around an ethic of the city as the space of proximate strangers and nothing other than that and as the space of shared resources and nothing other than that. So just to conclude, this kind of city does not force the encounter. This kind of city also perhaps loses the sharpness of action directed towards particular social groups. But I believe that in allowing all residents to breathe, as it were, the same air, this kind of city, the city of the commons, begins to generalize well-being and in the process perhaps um, makes the urbanism of the comfortable middle and the urbanism of the evacuating elites along the divide politics of resentment look out of place. Thank you very much, Ash. So our next speaker is Dicky Bell from Brooklyn College and the time is not taken in Cuba Argentina. Just to say um, that, uh, somewhat unwisely perhaps, um, I thought I would talk today um, about the route not taken um, within my own research. So as Mete kind of said at the beginning, um, I've been working in Argentina on the kind of politics of memory in relation to the last dictatorship there. And so this paper isn't about that. Well, it is and it isn't, um, but it's about um, a kind of hesitation that I have about that field, that is memory studies, um, and uh, in particular the way in which the idea of history enters into that. Um, so um, I'm going to focus in, so I want to thank Ash for giving us that wonderful opening, um, and I'm going to sort of zoom in and talk about this one city, uh, which is, is Cordoba. Um, so the paper is uh, organised in six very short chapters, and you'll see them going through on Roman numerals as I go along. Let us begin with Walter Benjamin's speculative city, as described by Harold Kagan, where the speculative conveys both method and experience. Benjamin's city writings, Kagan writes, exemplify his speculative method, the understanding of the urban experience through the use of the spatio-temporal contrasts and counterfactuals. It's not only an epistemological device for gaining knowledge of the urban experience, but is itself a feature of that experience. The experience of the city is shot through with allusions to other cities in buildings, street names, spatial typographies, 
um, but more obviously in the pasts that are embodied in the city. The experience of the city is a negotiation with the ghosts and residues of previous experiences. Today I want to speak about the city of Cordoba in Argentina as shot through with pasts, a city of ghosts. But from the outset, I would note that Benjamin's writings suggest that it's not only the lingering events of history that haunt the present, but also those more difficult, and I mean more difficult to conceptualize, lost chances and missed encounters, a myriad of non-events which constitute, again in Cagle's helpful terms, a forfeiture of an experience but which are nevertheless real, as the virtual is real. Moreover, Benjamin insists that the experience of the city is ecstatic and futural, haunted by intimations of the future, whether as a city ecstatically fusing into an epic unity of past, present and future, or in the melancholy of the allegorical city. Along the length of Santa Catalina Passage, which runs alongside the famous cathedral in the UNESCO-listed quarter of Cordoba, Argentina, the flags are flying. An unusual bunting crisscrosses the narrow lane, creating a canopy over the heads of the pedestrians. On each flag, there is a photograph, a portrait of a desaparecido, each with a name printed underneath and a date of disappearance. A few have some further words, but mostly it's just the name and the date beneath images that were never intended for this purpose. Graduation photographs, passport or ID card photographs, holiday snaps. Leaving the images to flutter above you and to bespeak their collective message without overt textual instruction. This bunting is hung each Thursday to coincide with the walking of Cordoba's Madres in the central square just a few moments away. It's a ritual, an initiative of the team who work at the D2 Centre, a small labyrinthine set of connected buildings organised around a small um, series of courtyards. It's located on Santa Catalina Passage and was once a police building housing Cordoba's <coughs> Department of Police Intelligence, the D2. During um, the dictatorship and in the years preceding the dictatorship, however, it was used as a clandestine centre for detention, torture and extermination. Today, it's a site of memory, and as well as a museum, it houses the Provincial Memory Archives and the Commission created by law in March 2006. Insofar as the bunting obliges those who walk down the passage to take note of these hundreds of faces gazing down on them, it disrupts the pedestrian's rhythm. It invites these ghosts of the past to haunt the present because it is a tactic in a wider strategy. Indeed, the bunting is a public intervention that one might say with Rancière asserts a reconfiguration of the distribution of the sensible, those whom the dictatorship had wished to render invisible and made visible, asserting their place within a manifestation of dissensus. For Rancière, politics is about disturbances to reigning arrangements. And these disturbances operate, he suggests, 
through supplementation by pointing to a part that has no part in the current mode of distribution. Ghosts would certainly qualify here. Politics is an aesthetic activity, creating intervention by a sort of additional request that demands accommodation, that demands a rearrangement. Where, as with bunting, a sensation or experience imposes, he sometimes uses the term superimposes itself, one might begin to speak of dissensus as the layering of dissonant sensoriums that has the potential, and I quote from him, to trigger new, pas new passions, which means new forms of balance or imbalance. Writing about this scene recently, I posed a series of questions, which began with the images. I asked, what sort of new passions or forms of balance or imbalance can be triggered by the presentation of photographs? Is it possible to understand this as rising from the images themselves? What is the work that the new and state-funded spaces of memory do around photographic traces of state violence? But with these questions, I'd already taken a certain route. I had turned from the bunting, as it were, literally and metaphorically, into the D2 Museum and into its principal concerns. In a different context today, I want to pose different questions and to consider the routes not taken by my own research, as it were, as well as to talk about the images that I took but that I never showed. Let us return then to Benjamin, and this time to the thesis on the philosophy of history. The fifth thesis famously asserts that every image of the past that is not recognized by the present as one of its own concerns threatens to disappear irretrievably. Certainly there are no guarantees that the bunting operates according to Ranciere's thesis. And that would invite an easy celebration, too easy perhaps, of a triumph over the recent state violence. But my point here is not to set up an argument with Ranciere. It is concerned rather with how <coughs> the attention to the ghosts that appear, as it were, um, that are concerns of the present, potentially obliges one to stop wondering about those that do not, about an order imposed by the attentions of the present. When we, and I include myself and my research project here, turn into the D2 Museum, where the history of the violence of the 1970s and the early 80s is the <coughs> stimulus for reflection, we grapple with questions that arise there, and these are complex and important questions, of course. But there's also potentially a performative eclipsing of other violent histories, other potential histories, events, and memories. As Derrida noted, drawing on Levinas, our response is always a non-response to another route not taken. Other events and histories that do not appear don't have an image, and the photographic image was, of course, central to Benjamin's concerns, are consequently under-imagined. <laughs> If this is so, the photo images might be redescribed less generously than I just did as a certain kind of publicity, and making public that publicizes the work and the existence of the D2 Museum and its concerns. It invites the pedestrian then and the events of history to turn, to turn into their space and into their spacing. 
In the false thesis, Benjamin wrote, as flowers turn towards the sun by dint of a secret heliotropism, the past strives to turn towards that sun which is, the, which is rising in the sky of history. Across the road from the museum, you can take a tour of the cathedral, the world famous cathedral, Our Lady of the Assumption, where the tour guides will tell you that the building of the cathedral began in 1580 and it wasn't completed until 1784. As part of the description of the interior, you will be informed the indigenous people of the area worked on the cathedral and some of their influence can be seen. And it can be seen, you will be told, in the recognizably local faces of the sculpted angels that adorn the towers. According to one tourist website, people reporting on their experiences, somebody reports, we learned that the cathedral features a mixture of architectural styles, classic and American Baroque, and on the tower edges, statues of musician angels holding trumpets and wearing skirts made of feathers arise from the native American Indian culture stand out. This slide, by the way, shows, uh, is taken from the D2 center, so the people who were detained in the center could see the cathedral. The angels in the cathedral, how Benjaminian, come to be the sign of the image of the indigenous workers. Close by in the Jesuit Square stands the San Ignacio Church, known today as the Company of Jesus Church. Again, the tour guide will tell you that the wooden barrel vault was built by indigenous workers and by the black African slaves over several years. Because of its central location, by the end of the 16th century, Cordoba was the principal entrepot after Buenos Aires for the distribution of slaves throughout Spain's southern territories. They were sold on, especially in response to the demand that came from Upper Peru and later from Chile. Between 1588 and 1610, six trading companies were formed in Cordoba to sell slaves. Trade continued over a span of some 300 years, filling, as our historians put it, a labour shortage that was left by the massacres of the indigenous peoples during the Spanish conquest. In Cordoba itself, the principal purchaser of the slaves was the church. Throughout the province, Jesuit estancias housed hundreds of slaves, demonstrating, as one uh, recent doctoral thesis puts <coughs> in rather understated terms, that the church could reconcile its Christian beliefs that argued all men were equal with the institution of slavery. Even when the contribution of the slaves and the indigenous workers to the making of this city are pointed out, and even where this history has become images, as with the angels, they fail to superimpose themselves on the present to recall Ronsier's tongue. Instead, they have become narrativized and incorporated. The relations between colonialism, <coughs> slavery, Christianity, their violence, and their specificities in this region have become alive in a tourist tour. One might ask what the problem is with this. What's the problem with these other and older past histories of the city folding back into history with a capital H? Isn't there something both uh, righteous and too stark 
about a warning, a sort of renewed non-commerce warning, that points to these older histories of oppression that constitute the city, but that do not fuel its present concerns. This is the point I wish to pursue, which is not about an ethical dressing down of the activities that focus on the recent past of state violence, but asks instead about the differences between saying that these past histories of violence have become incorporated into narratives, or between saying that they have become virtual, or saying that they have become fused into a unity with present and future. In her recent reading of Benjamin's thesis of philosophy, Judith Butler focuses on the notion of remembrance, interpreting his argument as one which gives remembrance the chance to work against progressive history that covers up histories of progression. Remembrance isn't simply about telling that history, it's not about excavating and monumentalizing the past, rather it undoes progressive history's seamless continuity. This undoing is not a battle then that is staged between two actors, although these fragments do sometimes appear as figures, but it is a breaking forth of another temporality, or glimpses of that other experiences of time. Moreover, Butler suggests that it is related to Benjamin's concern with the question of how populations are differentiated, some of whom are pro propelled forward and others cast out and deformed in the casting, at least from the perspective of the victors. Fragments don't necessarily halt the dominance of progressive history. Although they can flash up, they can also simply fade away again. A recent and perhaps optimistic approach might prompt a search for those moments when other histories of oppression appear in ways that would have been unlikely or um, not have appeared at all um, if it weren't for the existence of the work around recent memories of state violence. This approach would be something akin to Michael Rothberg's argument in his book, Multidirectional Memory. Thus one could look, for example, at the ways in which the director of the D2 Center in Cordoba comments in a, a video that's made about spaces of memory in Argentina. She comments um, on the history of the passage of the, of the um, lane, the Santa Catalina um, passage. She says, since 1557, until the beginning of democracy, she means in 1983, it was always a place where people were murdered. First, there were those opposing the colonial regime, the indigenous people who were executed by firing squads against the walls of the cathedral. And then in the 30s, the police murdering those who held opposing views, first the anarchists, then the communists, then the Peronists, then the anti-Peronists, until finally in the 70s, those that they considered subversives. According to Rothberg, writing about Marguerite Duras' 1961 response to the killing and detention of hundreds of Algerians in the heart of Paris, and which she likened by analogy um, to the experience of an elderly survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto, there can be engagements which, even though they don't represent a sustained engagement with common questions and relations, may manage to hold a place, to hold a place for a future explicit engagement. 
In that case, Rothberg names this the issue of complicity in that case in Paris. It's true that there are exhibits, say, in the museum itself that potentially call up other histories as part of the same frame, as it were, to activate or to actualize these histories that have become folded into narratives of progress, but which retain the potential to emerge. And there are small moments of danger in Benjamin's terms that have forced the team there to consider their choices and the ethical terms that they make in their work. On the 19th of February, two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, a young man called Facundo Rivera Alguere disappeared in the city of Cordoba as he left a quartet of dance. He remains disappeared. The authorities maintained a silence for a very long time about this case. And while no one could be certain, many pointed to police involvement. Himself the nephew of relatives of the disappeared in the 70s, Facundo's mother mounted a campaign reminiscent of the campaigns during the dictatorship. The slogans that accompanied it were again those of the mothers of the previous generation. The cry of Convida resounded around Cordoba once again. For the team at D2, the case of Facundo sparked a debate about whether, amongst other things, about whether to include Facundo's photograph um, with the flags on their weekly hanging of the bunting. After much debate, it was decided not to include him. Um, this was a very uh, fraught um, decision, um, but this decision effectively decided that his image had no place amongst these other faces. The significance of this ethical cut was not lost on the team, but it was a potential montage, a juxtaposition of images that was curated away. I'll finish with just a final word. It's not the D2 center itself that is the problem here, of course. The team there are more aware than anybody um, of the difficulty of these issues and their relation to temporalities. Moreover, it's not as if we can be sure that these archives and these activities are themselves safe, even if they do currently receive state support. In Buenos Aires, the city gov government has made it clear very recently that it does not prioritize this issue. And the Memorial Park, for example, in its future is not one of the commitments at this time. At the other end of Santa Catalina um, Passage, back in Cordoba, <coughs> On um, the day that I visited, two years ago, there was a stall that was attempting to gather signatures for a petition to bring back national service. Its discourse, both nationalist and punitive, towards the youth in Argentina. One remembers the future concerns of Benjamin, of fusing the past, present and future into a unity. As blown by the wind, the national flag wraps itself around the sign to the memory archive.